All right, well, welcome to Summer in the Psalms. We're back again. We're going to be in Psalm 95, so grab your Bibles and uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 95. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, just flip it open right in the middle, and you should be near the Psalms. Just go left to right until you see the word P-S-A-M-L. P-S-A-L-M. How do you spell that word? There, there it is. There it is. Help me out. Psalm 95. We're going to read these uh, 11 verses out loud together, and here we go. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our, salva- our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not hearten your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for this beautiful weather after a few days of rain. We're grateful for the sun that's shining over us that reminds us of new mercy granted to us today and of your great grace. And we thank you, Lord God, for the gathering of your church. Lord God, we sing and we worship and we honor today uh, the God of our salvation. And we join the psalmist with extolling your praise today. And we pray that in the words of this psalm, we might see what you intend for us as your people, what you intend for us in regards to how we come to you in worship, and more importantly, how you intend for your word to change us. And so change us by your gospel, change us indeed. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. And amen. So our thing today is worship. That is what I want to portray out of this psalm today. And this is an important thing, firstly, because worship is one of our values. And so uh, if, you, if those of you that have not yet been through our membership class, we talk about the seven values that we have as a church and why they are important for us. And worship is one of them. And really why it's one of them comes out of the Book of Common Worship. The Book of Common Worship says this. It says that worship is at the very heart of the church's life. All the church is and does is rooted in its worship. The community of faith gathered in response to God's call is formed in its worship. Worship is the principal influence that shapes our faith, and it is the most visible way that we express faith. Worship is important. One of the issues for us, however, is Most of us approach worship from an external perspective. We see worship as that thing that we do when we come to church and that somebody stands up and tells us to stand up and we sing songs at the beginning. We may uh, we may lift our hands or if you're Catholic, you may bow down on your your knees. You may genuflect. We may even close the service out with a little bit of singing as well. And we think that that's worship. But. From the perspective of Scripture, especially this psalm, that's not all that worship entails. Those things are significant. The actions of worship are significant, 
But the psalmist is inviting us to go and to think deeper into the heart of worship. And so when God calls us to worship, the question for us that we should be asking as we ponder this psalm is, I mean, what is he after in me? What is he beckoning, inviting, and calling me to do? And I think the psalmist reminds us, firstly, that we can't come to God in worship in a half-hearted or a heartless way. The other thing I would tell you in regards to this psalm, and really in worship in general, is that many of you uh, may have the perspective that, that worship is foreign. I mean, just like um, if you're a Christian, for sure, you have no idea of, of what worship is. You may be thinking, well, I'm just trying to figure out who God is. I mean, don't, don't, don't ask me what I think about worship. And so perhaps for you, the whole idea of you worshiping a God that you can't see is a foreign idea for you. And you, you may even say, you know, I, I, I don't think I worship at all. I don't do those kinds of things. And to that, I would simply say, you're wrong. Everybody worships. Everybody, in fact, is worshiping all the time. You may not, you may not use the biblical language of worship. You may not do the, the actions of worship, lifting your hands, bowing your knees, uh, putting your hands in a posture that might look like praying or things of that nature. But all of us worship and we worship all the time. Worship is not necessarily a Christian or religious reality. Worship, however, is a human reality, very much so. And so when we put something in play in the ultimate place of significance in our lives, that really is worship. And all of us do that all the time. We do it through our kids or through our houses, the stuff that we have. We may do it with our money. We're always placing significance uh, uh, an important significance on things in our life. And when we do that, that indeed is worship. And so in Psalm 95, my hope is that we would see that God is inviting us, beckoning us, and calling us um, to worship. As we, as we dive into this psalm, uh, really we can divide it into three different sections, three different ways that God is uh, showing us different aspects or different visions of worship. And so I've got three points for us today. The first is, is simply that worship is rejoicing because God is great. So uh, in verse one, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our, self, our, of our salvation. I can't even say that. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And so the psalmist is beginning by inviting us into worship. And what would have been happening uh, with the nation of Israel as they pondered these words, they would have been sung and thought about and said as a congregation as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three, um, three of the most important uh, feasts or celebrations that the nation of Israel had. And it occurred around the time of uh, the fall, the mid-October, and those that were in Jerusalem and all those Jews that were around the known world would come to Jerusalem and they would gather as a congregation and they would be a, it would be a procession. And they would be going into the, the temple and priests would be leading them and they would be saying and singing these grand words. And the atmosphere would, I mean, I could just imagine it was probably electric. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. I mean, they're singing probably at the top of their lungs. There's probably dancing, tambourines, all kinds of musical instruments being used to give honor to God using these very words. Note that the, the, the psalmist doesn't say, he doesn't say, come let us, come let us listen to somebody else sing. Like, like this morning when we first started, 
All of us in here were listening to Tim sing because we weren't not not very many of us were singing along with him. The psalmist doesn't say sing if you have a great voice. And he definitely doesn't say make excuses for why we can't sing. He says, come, let us sing. In fact, he says, make a joyful noise. And so for those of you that absolutely can't sing, some of you that, 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 that actually know you can't sing, this, this gives you no excuse. The psalmist is inviting us to come and make whatever noise that you can in, in your worship to God. And this is important. Singing together is an important biblical expression of worship. There's a theology of worship in the Bible, and we're not necessarily going to talk about that today. But when we come together on Sunday, one of the reasons why we sing corporately is because of uh, passages in the Bible like this that invite us and really command us to come and bring worship, singing worship to God as a form of admiring him and honoring him. And so when we come and sing, it's not a concert. We're not trying to impress anybody. We really have an audience of one in our forefront, and we're singing to him. It's an opportunity for us as the community of faith to express ourselves and to rejoice. I think that's the optimum word, to rejoice. He continues in, in, uh, in verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The emphasis here is on joy. And then he throws in, we, we should be thankful. We should be looking back uh, over the years, however many long, long uh, number of years that you have been walking with God, however long that you've known that there's a God that loves you, that, that loves you enough to die for you on a cross. You should be thinking back to all those years, but you should also be thinking back to what God may have done for you last week and what he's going to do for you today and into the future and thank him for. And this is where this is where the celebration comes from. It comes from all those ways that God has done things on your behalf when you really weren't deserving of whatever he did for you. And so Israel is thanking God not only for deliverance, but they're corporately coming into his presence and they're just celebrating for the opportunity to do that. And these words convict me. They convict me because I know that there's been days that I've even coming in here. I mean, I, I'm a worshiper. I like to come. I like to actually sing and worship to God. I like to lift my hands. But sometimes I can do those things and it not be in my heart. I'm just doing it mechanically, not really you know, it's just going through the motions. And so the psalmist here is saying, come, but don't just give me half your worship. Give me all of you. And the way that you connect to who I am is by thinking about all that I've done for you and celebrating out of that spot. And so I would honestly tell you, I've got room to grow here, but so do you. Because the psalmist is inviting us to, to be joyful as we worship to give thanks as we worship, to celebrate as we worship. He's espousing um, a very demonstrative, experiential kind of worship here. And some of you, that makes you uncomfortable. If you're perhaps from a Catholic background or a Presbyterian background or Episcopalian background, anything outside of uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, you, you likely aren't used to what the psalmist is encouraging you to do here. But he's giving us license. He's giving us room to be demonstrative in our worship. Every once in a while, you all don't know this. My wife holds, a, holds up a sign for me. Sometimes she does it on the front row, but usually she's out all in the back. like She's doing it right now. 
and, uh, and, and, and she will, she'll try to get my attention every once in a while. She's like actually written on a piece of paper and put a smiley face because she'll see I'm up here either giving announcements or I'm, I'm, I'm actually preaching. And I don't know what I look like. I just, you know, I'm just being myself. And the way she explains it, it looks like I have a frown or a scowl on my face. It's like you could at least pretend like you're, there's a little joy <laughs> in you from, from preaching, getting to preach. And it's not that I don't feel that, but it's just, I guess that's what's coming out. And this is the truth. Forty percent, if not more, you all are military. And I think something happens when we get in the military. It like the, the our assimilation to the military environment just sucks. It just sucks some of the joy out of us. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it like that, but that's that's kind of what it does. And so even if you have it in you, it's like you can't show it. And so the only, the only thing you're allowed to show is like this stoic you. And so I think after 24 years of military life, that's what comes out on the outside. And so the psalmist is giving us, he's created this stoic free zone. You cannot be stoic when you come into the house of God corporately to worship. He's freeing us from that. And so I'm praying that God grows me in this expression of joy. And I'm honestly praying that he would grow you in that area, too. The psalmist doesn't just tell us to enter in to this demonstrative version of worship. He also tells us why. Verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods and his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. And so why should we worship and sing and celebrate with rejoicing? The psalmist says because God is a great God. And so he ascribes kingship to God. He says, the God that you serve is a king. He's a ruler. He's not like all these other surrounding nations that serve pagan gods. He's the king of all kings. And he's not only the king, he's the God. He's God, the only God. And then as many of the Psalms do, the psalmist gives special emphasis to God as creator. And so the psalmist says, from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains, to the vastness of the seas, the God that you serve, he's made all of this. He's holding it all together. In fact, it's it's all in his hands. And you get he's made you that you get to experience all of this. And this is a reason to celebrate. And because he's great, because he's majestic, because he's done all this, he deserves our worship. And so I would ask you, is is worship as rejoicing your experience? I mean, have you ever done this? Have you ever felt the need to do it? Is it in you to worship God demonstrably with all that you are so that it would manifest in your actions? You know, it's interesting. It's football season coming up and, you know, I'm a sucker. So I watch preseason football just because I'm ready for football to start. I'm just ready. So Jonathan and I were watching a little bit of the uh, Redskins versus the Ravens last night, and uh, it wasn't a good game, of course, because it's preseason. But it just isn't it interesting when you compare a church crowd to like a, uh, a sporting crowd. So you got your team, and your team is moving that ball down the field. You, you know, move that ball. I'm singing a West Point cheer. All right, so <laughs> moving the ball down the field, and you know, a couple, couple attempts into the end zone, finally. You know, uh, Cousins hands out the ball in, in, in the end zone. And it's preseason football. But what do we do? We stand up on our feet. Actually, if you're a Redskins fan, if you're in a 100-seat section, you're standing up the whole game anyway. So you're standing up, and everybody's going to raise their arms up, and they're going to go, like, yeah! Is that what we do? 
That's exactly what we do. There's excitement, there's enthusiasm, there's rejoicing. And so it, it, it baffles me every once in a while, and especially last night as I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about um, worshiping God with rejoicing, how we can rejoice in those times at a sporting event, but we don't oftentimes bring that same kind of excitement and rejoicing into our corporate worship. And I, you know, I can't honestly tell you why it is. I, I sort of know. But isn't that funny how we do that, that in that environment, but don't do it here? I think one of the, one of the reasons is uh, we have this preconceived notion that our worship toward God has to be reverential. I'm going to talk about that in a couple seconds. And so even when we come close to a place, it, I mean, even in, in, this, in this school, I don't know if you all notice this, but you all walk into this room before service and you start whispering. We, we all do that. And, and, you know, we do that out of reverence. For God. But God, he can handle you yelling. Yell all you want to the glory of God. It's okay. He can handle it. And so I'm not trying to guilt trip you. There's this uncanny connection between fans and their teams. When a team scores, the fans are watching. They're experiencing all this. And when a team scores, that's absolute good news. They've seen good news happen right before them. And if you will allow me, this side of the cross, this is exactly what the gospel is for us. Anybody that takes the time to recollect what God has done for them, anybody that truly knows that their sins have been forgiven and that they've received, even when they weren't deserving the great grace of God, has reasons to cheer. You've got reasons to lift your hands and to rejoice. And that's what the, the psalmist is calling us to. He's taking us past this cognitive, intellectual knowing of God, and he's saying, experience God for yourself. Think about all the tough spots you've been in. Think about all the, just the, think, the, the places that you have put yourself in. Think about just how life has happened for you and how God has been there for you every single time. And when you get to that place, let that experience remind you of the good news that comes to you in the form of Jesus. You know, a lot of times we focus on the externals of worship, and this is the other aspect of this. We, we think that rejoicing does have to look like this. You know, some of you, definitely those of you who, who come from Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds, you were told how you were supposed to worship. This is how you clap your hands. This is what you do that, that looks like the right worship of God. This is what rejoicing looks like. And, and I don't want you to get me wrong that we have to come to God with, with some external um, manifestation or affectation that looks like worship when your heart's not in it. That's not what the psalmist is saying either. True rejoicing isn't necessarily an outward affectation. Rather, rejoicing for all of us is the response of a heart that's being changed by the gospel. So the, call, the, the psalmist calls us to authentic worship. Worship is rejoicing because God is great. Secondly, uh, the psalmist says worship is reverence because God is our God. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. I'm, I'm throwing that in there. Remember the song? You guys know that song? Oh, come. Oh, let us worship. Sing it with me. Oh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Y'all know it. There you go. You know, while sometimes it's appropriate to sing and shout and express us of joy to God, there's also a time to be quiet. And that's what the psalmist is inviting us to. We can be moved by the reality that worship is celebration, but it's also adoration and it's humility. 
And the psalmist says, let's bow down, let's kneel. And so the question for us is, why should we bow down and kneel to God? And he tells us. He tells us in verse 7, the first part of verse 7. He says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. And so he likens us, almost like Psalm 23 that Peter preached several weeks ago, to uh, the care that uh, a lone shepherd would give to his flock. They follow him everywhere he goes. They hear his voice. They know him. He'll go hundreds of miles to retrieve one and leave the 99 back. And this is how the, the psalmist says, God, this is how he becomes our God. And so what makes you bow down in reverence, uh, what makes us kneel is the fact that God is great, but also that God is our God. Not, not, not only that, he's your God. Say that. God is my God. Did y'all say it? I can't hear you. Again, I think the psalmist, taking, the psalmist is taking us from this, um, this cognitive, intellectual knowing of God to a more personable, personableness to, to God for ourselves. You're one of his people. He's inviting you to receive God like that. In, re, in regards to reverent, reverential worship, I think one of the appropriate words that we could use for that is the word awe. You guys know that word? We, we, I don't know. Do we still use that word? I, I, we use a form of that word. Actually, we use a form of that word so much so that I think we, um, we have lessened what reverential awe of God should be. We use the word awesome a lot. So the pizza that I ate from Johnny's last night was awesome. And um, the trip that my family took to Florida, Orlando, and all those amusement parks that we went, although I'm exhausted from it, it was just an awesome vacation. And uh, the beach that we're going to go uh, as we close out Labor Day and experience the end of summer next week, it's going to be awesome. And so it really, in, in many ways, um, we can see everything is awesome so that awe loses its flavor. And we don't really know what awe really means. I mean, have you experienced awe? Have you been out on a boat? Um, Larissa and I have taken two cruises. Been out on a cruise ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with no, no, no land around us. And you see just the waves and nothing else. And you, I mean, no man could have made that. Have you, have you, I'm not a mountain climber because Ranger School ruined that for me. It like, seriously, I'm just scarred in my heart from mountain climbing at Ranger School. I'll never climb another mountain. But if you're one of those people that like to climb mountains, have you climbed a mountain and looked down to the valley below and just pondered? I mean, who could have made all this? Have you been in an airplane and seen the contour of the earth and just how the, the, the landscape, just how it just folds and, and, and lays out? And to be in a plane and have it lift on a cloudy day up above the clouds and you see the serenity of the earth above all those clouds and the brightness of the sun, even though below it there might have been drab and dreary. I think when we see sights like these, we're reminded that there's awe in the world that didn't come from man's hands. And we're reminded of how big that something that made it is and how small and insignificant we are. And really, those are signs of awe. Um, a couple of you have had babies in the last couple of weeks, and I've had my wife. My wife's had a couple of babies. I haven't had any, but I've 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 experienced the process. 
And so the process for me is the nurse or the doctor bringing the baby to you, okay? But when you get that baby and you look down and you see this bundle of joy in your hands and you automatically, you don't, you, you don't think like the Darwinist or the evolutionist that, that random selection and, and mutation has created this thing. That's not what you think, right? I mean, that's the farthest from your mind if you're a parent. You think that something greater than I, something greater than even what I could do by being intimate with my spouse has created this beautiful bundle of joy. And all you want to do is ascribe glory to whatever it is in the world that caused that conception and that baby to form and caused him, him or her to be born to happen. This really is awe. And so this sense of awe should be the prevailing tone of your life. I think the psalmist is inviting us to that. What it means to worship is that every, in every way uh, that you live your life, you're constantly aware of the God that provides the wonder and awe that surrounds you. And so ask yourself, is awe the predominant tone of your life? Or is it possibly not there at all? Some of us need to ex- this experiential reality of who God is. Some of us need our awe of God and his creation restored. I think the other thing that the psalmist is saying, in particular in these two verses, is the thing that gives us reverence and awe of God is, is love. He's saying that when he says he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's, he's showing us a picture of what love look, looks like. But it's, it's, you can get confused by this. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us. It's his covenantal love. It's a love that we can't buy. It's a love that comes to us when we're most undeserving. This is what this looks like. And when you experience the psalmist is conveying to us, you don't even know what reverential worship of God is unless you've experienced the love that comes to you in the form of this covenantal love of God. And so the psalmist speaks in this familial, intimate position here. He doesn't come as a stranger. He speaks as one who's confident of, and, and assured of God's love for him. He's saying the promises of God are, are, are true for me. His promises aren't for just everybody. They're true specifically for me. It's the assurance that the Holy, Holy Spirit, that only the Holy Spirit can give you that indeed you are a child of God. It's knowing that God has condescended to me in the form of Jesus, that he's forgiven me of my sin, that he's given me great grace, that he's made me a part of his family, that he's made me one of his people. And so have you experienced this reverential awe of God? So the psalmist says to us, firstly, worship is rejoicing because God is great. And then he says, worship is reverence because God is our God. And lastly, the psalmist uh, tells us that worship is the response of obedience because God is holy. And this one trips us up. Verse 7, he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. And so the psalmist has just invited us into this experiential worship where we uh, are demonstrably worshiping God. We're thanking him, we're praising him, we're celebrating him for who he is, because he's great. And then he's giving us this version of worship where in adoration we've come and we've bowed down to God. And it seems like he's changing directions here. 
It seems like he may be even getting away from this idea of worship and that he's about to chastise us with his words. But he's not quite doing that. Instead, he's inviting us to experience another aspect of worship. And so he says, we're to hear. Today, if you hear his voice and based on what you've heard, he says, don't harden your hearts. The Hebrew of the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, to hear meant that you not only listened. This is going to be good for you, parents. To hear meant that you not only listened, but you responded in conformity to what you heard. I mean, wouldn't you love for your kids to, like, do that? Honestly, I mean, that when I read that, an amen comes out of me. That's like, amen. Let it be so, God, right now. To hear meant that you not only listen, but that you responded in conformity to what you heard. And so what the psalmist is saying is worship looks like obedience. It's not only hearing, but it's responding to what you heard, responding in conformity to what you heard. We shouldn't pass over the word today. And so the psalmist in this phrase is giving us a present day, I mean, a uh, uh, a present, uh, present sense of this command. He's saying right now, today, August 24th, 2014. I had to think about what year it was. He says, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. This is what obedience looks like for us. And so today, Transit Church, don't harden your hearts. God is saying, desire not to be hard-hearted to God. Instead, be soft hearted, be responsive to the warnings and the cautions that God gives us in Scripture. That's what he's inviting us to. That's what he's inviting us to here. But then the psalmist connects Israel to their history. Verse eight, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had not seen my work. These are quotes from Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. These are, are, this is a noted place where Israel, uh, they had just been delivered, obviously, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the midst of the, of the wilderness, and God is providing for their needs through the miracles of Moses. And they come to a point where they had traveled, and they ran out of water. And like us, they were, they were instant people. When they got thirsty, they wanted to drink. It's like, give me something to drink. And there was no water to be found. So the scripture says they quarreled to Moses. Okay, And the place where they quarreled was at uh, Massa. Okay, And then uh, the, the scripture says that when they quarreled to Moses, it was like testing God. Okay, And that's the word Meribah. Okay? And so that's why Moses called those places Meribah and, and Massa. They mean quarreling and testing God. And of course, God told Moses, take your staff, strike the rock, and water came out, and their thirst was fulfilled. The psalmist also makes this personal. He's tying Israel, the, the current day Israel that he's, that, the, that he's writing this letter to, to their fathers. He said, your fathers put God to the test, and you are close to also putting God to the test as well. Verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they've not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so the, the words at the end of this psalm aren't just for the people that the psalmist is writing them to. The words at the end of this psalm are words that are for us as well. He's telling us today 
if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's calling us to a worship that lends to obedience. And so the psalmist reminds us, I'm really, he warns us here in these words, God is holy. And a holy God means that he's, he's not like us. He's completely separate from us, although he exposes himself to us. Honestly, it means that God is a little bit dangerous. God doesn't take our sin lightly. And because he's holy, we will all give an account to him. I think we sometimes make the, the mistake of only seeing two kinds of people. We read scriptures like this and, and we apply this thought to it. Well, God is happy with me because I'm a Christian. I've submitted myself to him, and so I'm, I'm okay. I may sin, but God's going to forgive me of my sins. But then there's another category of people, non-Christians, and God doesn't like them. In fact, the Bible says he hates them because of their sin. And we assume that when we see these hard words, I mean, when, you, when God says, I loathe that generation, that equates to him saying, I, I hated them because of their sin. Those are hard, harsh words words that God is applying to people that were not obedient in those days. And so our mistake is we read words like that and we ascribe it to people who aren't like us. Those people who aren't Christians, that's the ones God's talking to. They, they didn't do what God said. He loathed them because they were rebellious and sinful and they, they, they did contrary to what God told them to do. But honestly, Almost all places, not every place, but definitely right here in Psalm 95 and in most places where we're reading hard words of God rebuking his people, they're written to people like us. God is writing these hard words to people who are already in covenant with him, who have tasted and seen that he's good, who've seen his miracles, who have experienced his love. And what he's saying is these words are for you. Don't harden your hearts as you saw your forefathers did, because it will lead to a place that you don't want it to go. We don't have have time to go there. I would recommend that you look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is uh, it's not a parallel psalm, but it takes this idea of God speaking to a people uh, that that were callous with with their hearts toward him. And God is, is awakening them. Uh, with warnings and cautions and, and really threats to not be hard-hearted. And Psalm 50 is a, is a challenge to the nation of Israel. It's a challenge to us to heed God's words. And so what Psalm 95 is doing right here, it really is the same thing that Psalm 50 would do. He's challenging us, calling us to obedience as a form of worship. And I, I think a lot of times what we do is we, we like to separate this idea of, of worship and obedience. And so uh, as a Christian, I'll, I'll come to church and I'll, I'll enter into worship of God, but we're forgetful people. And so as soon as the worship service is over, amen, I leave the, I leave the room. And, and sometimes we go to wherever we live our lives in the Northern Virginia area, and we forget that we are people that are accountable to God, that God expects us to worship, not just with outward manifestations of hands lifted or knees bent, but he expects us to worship with our lives. That's what he's calling the nation of Israel here to. And by extension, he's calling us to that as well. He's calling us to not just submit to his word, but to acknowledge our sin, to repent, to be honest about our sin, to be honest where you need to turn and live 
as the scriptures have called us to live. And so what Psalm 95 does for us is it holds the Bible up to us as a mirror. And it reminds us of what we see in that mirror. And that's, that mirror is that sometimes our lives aren't as they should be. A worshiper responds to these words by asking for God's grace. And that's what the psalmist is calling us to. And so when we get to a point where uh, we read the words of, 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 of the psalmist that says, Today, if you hear, don't harden your hearts. That's the Bible holding up a mirror to you and wherever you are in life. And it's saying, don't be like your ancestors. So as worshipers, we respond to these words by asking for God's grace. We should identify with the fact that we too are like the Israelite ancestors who hardened their hearts and put God to the test. What the Bible actually invites us to do is as we approach the end of Psalm 95, is to respond by running to the cross. That's how we should respond. Today, if you've heard his voice, don't harden your hearts. Instead, run to the cross and receive the grace of God. And so what the cross teaches us is that we need help. We need help. We need grace. We need provision for our heart-heartedness. We need someone that can obey in all the ways that we are disobedient. We need someone who can cover our sin. We need someone who can stand in for us, who can change our heart-hearts, who can soften us. I think true worship always gets us to Jesus. True worship leads us to lift our hands to the one that deserves us lifting our hands to, and that's Jesus. True worship leads us to the cross. It leads us to his life and his death and his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And so think about this. If the psalmist had reason to worship God by rejoicing on this side of the cross, how much more do we? How much more do we? How much more reason do we have to rejoice as we contemplate that the same God that existed and made the heavens, the same God that's the creator of all that we know that exists in our world is the same God that entered the world that he made. His purpose was to redeem the world that we live in from sin. He was was sent to redeem it from darkness and from Satan, to free us from the curse of sin. And so how much more reason do we have for rejoicing? And if the psalmist had reason for reverence and awe because of God's covenantal love for us, how much more do we? Those of us on this side of the cross have seen the the greatest love that the world will ever know. Jesus said, greater love has no one, no man that he lay his life down for his friends, John 15. And so how do we know that God is for us and that we can become his people? We know that because Jesus became one of us. Becoming one of us, he made it possible for us to be reconciled with God by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. Jesus made it possible for our sin problem to be wiped away, for our tendency toward rebellion to be paid for and forgiven that we might be rightly related to God. And so if the psalmist had reason to be reverent to God, how much more do we? And lastly, If the psalmist had reason for response of obedience, how much more should we on this side of the cross? Think about it. You know, some of us would say, as 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 many have said, that the grace of God gives us license to sin. Paul argued against that in Romans six. Should we sin that grace should abound? And of course, Paul said, God forbid. 
God's grace doesn't give us license to sin. Rather, on the cross, we know that God's wrath was meted out in Jesus' death. God's anger was placed on Jesus so that we could escape his wrath and instead experience the fatherly discipline that only God could give those who are in covenant with him. So how much more reason do we have to be obedient because uh, the God that we know, his justice was meted out on Jesus on the cross. And so the grace of God comes to us in the form of Jesus, and it turns our half-hearted, hard-hearted worshipers into true worshipers of God. The grace of God that comes to us in Jesus should give us awe. It should fill our hearts with love for the God that loved us first, and it ought to engender in us hearts that are obedient, not because someone makes us, but because we're gripped by what God has done for us in Jesus. And so in a minute, we're going to worship. We're going to do what the psalmist encourages us to do in this, in this passage here. And I'm not um, suggesting that you have to do any kind of demonstrative version of worship. But what I would encourage you to do is take a minute and just pause and connect with all that God has done for you. What makes God great for you? Whether it's 20 years ago or something he did for you last week or perhaps what he is doing for you right now. And let that be the thing that causes you to respond in, in an outward display of worship toward God. And as we take communion today, let's reconnect with God and his covenant of love toward us. Scripture says that God's covenant of us uh, appeared through Jesus bearing in his body the pain that was due us for our sin. Jesus died on the cross spilling his blood because he loved you. Greater love has no one than he laid down his love, laid down his life. And Jesus laid down his life for you. And so as we take communion this morning, be reminded that God endured pain in his body for you, that his blood was spilled on your behalf, in your place for your sin, because of the covenant of love that you've entered into with God. And then I would ask you, I would encourage you, challenge you really, to recommit to to being obedient. That's what the psalmist is calling us to. He says, don't harden your hearts. If you you hear God's voice, he's asking us to get past this, this cognitive knowledge of God and experience God. If you've heard his voice, don't harden your hearts. Instead, be obedient to all that he said. And ask God, which, which of these areas uh, do I need most help in? Which area do you need God to rekindle a fire in your heart in? Do you need God to help you, to free you, to be more experiential in your worship? Or perhaps you have lost your awe of God and his creation. Or perhaps there's areas in your life to which you should be more obedient to God and his word. Ask God to help you. Ask him to help you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you firstly for your word. We thank you for the words of the psalmist that remind us that you've called us, invited us, and and beckoned us to come and worship to you. And sometimes we We have a hard time 
just letting ourselves be free in worship. And I pray that you would free us, Lord God, to, to worship you based upon the freedom that you give us through the cross. And so, Lord, would you come and grace us with your presence as you did the Israelites as they celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. Would you come, Lord God, and renew in us a sense of awe that we might be, that we might reverence you with worship. And Lord God, would you, would you challenge us to worship you, to be obedient to all that you said in Scripture because you're holy. Remind us of your holiness today. And Lord God, remind us of the cross that we're able to come into you in, in worship because of the great love that Jesus shed on, shed on, the, on his blood on the cross. We're thankful. We're grateful. We worship you. It's in his name we pray.